Hello, everyone. It's Amber Love of Vodka O'Clock Podcast from AmberUnmasked.com. Today, my guest is a writer. Uh, she specializes in everything from poetry to relationship columns. So Amanda Chattel is here. Don't forget that we're labeled as an explicit website and podcast. So if you're easily offended or under 18, you should probably go away. Today, Amanda and I will be talking about writing, relationships, sex, bad dates, you name it. It's, it's all coming out for this um, Galentine's Day, Singles Awareness Day, Valentine's special, all wrapped up in one. Amanda, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's give the listeners some background because you're, you're currently a columnist. If you type your, your name into Google, there's all these wonderful links with amazing websites like Your Tangle, Your Tango, Bustle, and OkCupid. And um, so as my first, I think my first poet on the show. Okay. So, cool. um, and you were uh, an angry office manager, according to your former blog. Yes. <laughs> so how did, how, how did you get to writing about relationships through all of this? Um, well, I majored in English uh, with the plan of being a poet and uh, also planned to move to New York City, And um, but I was really scared to do that, so I stuck around in New Hampshire, where I'm from, for a while and went to school there and studied with Charles Simic, who is the Pulitzer Prize winning poet. And um, yeah, so I moved to New York City, and of course, when you move to New York City, you can't jump right in and be a writer somewhere. So I had uh, several jobs as an office manager, uh, one time for a year in fashion, and then I moved on to marketing. And um, I literally spent the entire time babysitting all these assholes. I can say assholes, right? Absolutely. Okay, cool. All these assholes. Um, and sending out these really angry emails reminding them, when you microwave something, you got to cover it. When you, you know, bring in your turkey sandwich and decide not to eat it, you can't leave it in there for two months. It becomes a problem. It becomes a science experiment. Um, so I had always wanted to be a writer, and this was sort of the way I was expressing myself was through these ridiculous emails. And... um Finally, one day, I had a boss who pissed me off for the last time and insulted me for the last time, and I was like, screw it. And I walked out of the office and never went back and um, started pitching ideas and forcing myself to hang out and talk to other writers and make contacts, which is very difficult for me because I'm extremely antisocial. Um, and yeah, so I finally did it. Um, and the reason I got into the whole relationship sex thing was because my very first job was for a website called The Gloss several years ago. Back then, they were really feminist and really like... I remember them. Yeah, yeah they were awesome. They were... We could write about anything. And um, I mean, since then, they've become just strictly beauty and superficial stuff. Uh, but we used to be able to write about really important things. So they sent me on a project to write about blowjobs. So I took a class down um, in Soho at Bayland, and uh, that was m one of my first pieces for them. So from there, I realized that it was important to talk about sex and talk about relationships from a very open sort of – coming from a very open place, like nothing should be taboo. And so I just, 
I focused on that and I focused on women's sexuality and reproductive rights. And that's just the direction I went. Uh, that's so cool that you say that because one of the things that I've seen recently is that not only is sex education at a mission critical point in in schools, um, but like some schools will only teach like abstinence only education. But there's there was a petition, and I can't remember which country it was. It might not have been in the U.S. where they were trying to get uh, added to the sex ed curriculum things like consent and the importance of the relationship aspects of sex also, not just teaching sex. So that way there was um, things like respect and boundaries and things like that would be talked about. Um, that certainly, I, I can't remember anything like that being done when I was going through high school. Oh, yeah, and I'm sure as Americans, we would never have such an open dialogue like that in a classroom. Um, that's the that's the problem. I'm sure that I, I know what you're talking about, and I can't remember where it was either, but I'm sure it was a European country. Um, because they put it all out there, Sweden actually has um, a national chlamydia day to bring attention to the fact that chlamydia is a huge problem in that country. And you would never have that in the United States because we deal with you know, the Christian right who want to preach the abstinence only thing and which is really it's a disservice to our kids and our sexually active teenagers and statistics have proven it. In South America, there's even a cartoon mascot of testicles <laughs> that, that was created in order to educate uh, men and boys uh, about the importance of testicular health and prostate cancer and things like that. Uh, so yeah, it's I guess it really depends on on the approach. One of the one of the things that I like about relationship and sex advice is when there is comedy added to it. It just really takes so much of the stress out of talking about these subjects. Oh, absolutely, and it's funny. Like when you think about it, sex is funny when you think about the action and the moaning and I mean it's funny so if you can't have a sense of humor about it like from from the standpoint of it being a humorous activity as well as a humorous thing to talk about education wise too then I just I don't know I just I, I feel that so much is wrong with the way we're teaching kids and even young women. I mean, there was the, I think it was a couple months, there was a study in the UK where a huge amount of women couldn't even identify where their vagina is. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and the advice that I seem to take away from sex educators is so applicable that I'm always encouraging people to listen to podcasts that are about relationships and sex ed, even if the, like just to, to take the information back to all of your relationships, because it's about communicating. That's why I love shows like Polly Weekly and Sex Nerd Sandra, because yeah, you're going to get maybe some sex toy advice or like you were saying, blowjob instructions, things like that. But there's so much emphasis on communication. And I also did the 
probably the exact same job you did, but for probably like, you know, a quarter of the money because I'm in Jersey. <laughs> and and when I would do things like hang up signs about cleaning out the refrigerator or, you know, don't put cream cheese on your bagel when you put it in the toaster. Um, <laughs> like these sorts of things is what I was going through. And, and I would try to learn as much as possible about the communication aspects of, uh, you know, trying to show someone who's, you know, been there longer or in a much higher position than I am, how to, how to let them think they're leading a conversation and, and things like that, how to make them feel comfortable. And I think the, the comfort factor is lost in most discussions. It's, um, it's something that some people are just truly gifted at. Yeah, no, I agree. So um, besides writing, do you take your information, because you said that you're, um, you're pretty shy about talking and stuff, but do you go to other places to, like, stretch your, your wings and your voice uh, and, like, do any public speaking on panels or at conventions? I actually have not. Um, I've been asked a couple of times, and I have faked sick <laughs> to get out of it. Um, okay. I am... I've always, even like talking to you right now, like I'm much better on paper. Um, I can't express myself verbally the way I can with the written word. Um, I'm actually doing another, my second podcast ever next week, um, talking about women in porn. And it's, it's hard. Like even talking to you right now, it's hard. I took a Xanax. I'm like, okay, I got to be cool. I got to be relaxed. Uh, so it's something that I would like to do, but it just, I don't know. I guess I'm just an emotional basket case when it comes to the thought of putting myself out there. And I would love to because I, it's talking about sex and communication relationships is extremely important to me. So, Well, um, both of us have a background as uh, radio DJs from college, and I know it was the first, the first several times I was in an empty room with a microphone, I thought this feels very strange. Oh yeah, to be to be talking and to nobody, and at least here we're we're having a conversation, we're engaged. But I've done solo podcasts as well, and it's a very surreal feeling that you're just talking, and um, you hope that there's going to be engagement somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but it did help me get so used to public speaking. That was the best part of being a radio DJ was I then when I actually had to had the public speaking classes in later semesters, standing up and looking at the crowd of people, it was so much easier to just pretend they weren't there. See, that's amazing. I wish I could do that. When I was um, a DJ, I didn't talk um, all that much. I played a lot of music and um, then I'd get on these, like, very uh, pretentious rants about music labels. But that's stuff I I could do because I was ranting. And when you're ranting, you can rant at nobody or you could rant at a bunch of people. And um, But the second I ran out of something to say, I could just put on a record. Because it was, you know, I went to right. college a while ago and we still had records. We still we had records. That's what I had, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, those were the joys of college stations was how, how free form they were and, um, 
you know, if you had a really long shift or something, you could just put on Inagata de Vida and go down the hallway exactly. and take a, take a nap. Um, so if, if writing is your comfort zone, do you experience writer's block or believe in it? One, one of the things that I've seen, uh, because I love quotes, I love looking at like author quotes and motivational quotes and stuff. And it's interesting that some authors actually don't believe in writer's block. They think that you're just not applying yourself at that moment. So I was wondering if you even believe in it and how, if you do, how you deal with it. Um, this one is a tough one. Um, I don't believe in writer's block when it comes to the stuff that I write about on a daily basis. Like I go into everything that I have to, and I write for several different websites. I, the second I get the topic either in my head or as the assignment, my brain already starts going in that direction to get it done. But when it comes to writing personally and wanting, I mean, I've for the last several, I mean, since I was a kid, I've wanted to write a book, but I sit down and I'll stare and stare and stare. So basically I've had like writer's block for over 30 years now. Um, so it's different. Like, excuse me, when I'm get, I know I'm getting paid for it. I can whip it out when I know that I have. What do I want to say? When I know that I'm not getting paid for it, and it's all about like putting my time and energy into something that I would love to have be my huge masterpiece in life. Uh, I can't. I just so I believe in writer's block in that way, but not when it comes to the workday writer. Does that make any sense? Did I just totally yeah. ramble? <laughs> no, it's well. I mean, de- deadlines and somebody, uh, you know, uh, uh, giving you an ex- an assignment, I, I think is a, oh, a yeah. bit different. Like I mean, kick you kick your, you know, kick you in the ass. Like you have no choice. Yeah. So, what is it like as a freelancer for all of these different sites? Do you have to pitch every single article, or do you just have column space and you know you need to turn stuff in every week? Um, It's a little bit of both. Um, Like nine o'clock in the morning, I sign on to Gchat and my editor, Rachel Krantz at Bustle is there and we talk about what we're going to do for the day. Um, So I know that she usually assigns me something like sometimes I'll pitch her things like I wrote a piece about you know, some of the interesting things about Roe v. Wade that people don't know, like a lot of people don't know, and this is sad, um, don't know what her her name was, and they don't know that she never actually got the abortion. So I was writing about these different things, and that was something I'd pitched to her. But a lot of times she'll pitch things to me. And then when it comes to your tango, um, it's equal. I pitch and get assignments. I've been writing about sex for Mike.com, and that's usually assignments. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of both, um, but my editors know me well enough to know what they can bring to the table and what I'm going to say yes to. So I'm really lucky in that way. That's great. Did that take a, a really long time to develop as far as how you look at other work relationships in the past? Yeah, well, I don't know. I think there's this bizarre intimacy between a writer and an editor and I think it doesn't take long for them to pick up on who you are and the way you express yourself and it takes a very very talented writer to be able to go in fix things up and keep the voice completely the same 
and I haven't met like some of my editors in person. Um, and I've worked with both Rachel, uh, Rachel Krantz and Michelle over at your tango for over a year. And we all live in the city, but I've never met them, but there's just this very unique intimacy there that I don't think other people have. I, I cause they're not really bosses. They're more like, well, they're like advisors. Yeah, advisors. Yep. So it's a different dynamic than any other working relationship I've ever had. What was your feeling the first time you went through the editorial process? Did you <laughs> did you know that, that were you prepared for it? Because it's it's gut wrenching. Yeah, it's a nightmare to be honest. Um, <laughs> the first few times when I did pieces, uh, they were you know when I was at the Gloss originally. Um, I was friends with the editors, so dealing with the editing process there was pretty easy, and we were allowed to do whatever we wanted because it was owned by um, a completely different company than it is now. And uh, so that was easy. It was just a matter of punctuation and, you know, just change this, change that. But now I'm writing about more intense things and more research things. Um, one of my pieces for Mike.com last week was about sapiosexuals. And that is a new term in the online dating world and in the dating world in general. And so when I got the piece back for my editor, Ellie, like there was just all this red, like I hadn't seen since college. And so I avoided the email and for as long as I possibly could. So it is, it is difficult, especially because editors don't have the emotional attachment to words the way the writer does, and they can easily go in and cut, whereas when they ask me to cut, like, every single word, I just, I, I can't cut it. Like, it's my baby. It's... You have to kill your darlings. Exactly. And I don't kill my darlings. I don't. I love <laughs> them. They ask me to cut it down to... So, five or six hundred words and I hand it in I'm like okay I tried it's at 937 but I want you to know I tried <laughs> yeah it, the editorial process for me uh it, it's a combination of feeling like I'm adult and don't belong even attempting writing <laughs> to um, to just thinking maybe everybody else is crazy like how do you not understand what the sentence is <laughs> you know like but uh, it's it, I, it's just a, an amazing evolution in how my grammar changed because I can remember back in junior high and being so meticulous with grammar because it was fresh in my mind. I was learning it every single day. I was learning about the words and the spellings and the, where the commas and the semicolons go. And, uh, you know, that's, that's completely lost if you don't use it. Oh, it totally is. Like, I... I am still not sure how to use a semicolon and I just kind of like, Oh, maybe it'll look good here. So I'm also comma happy. And this has been a complaint, not just my editors, but since I was in grammar school, Amanda Chattel, you are comma happy. Like any opportunity to stick in a comma because I kind of, I write the way I talk and I, and in my head, I'm sort of like, duh, 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 duh. so it's wherever a pause. Is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there are writers. I don't know how they do this, but they they turn off their internet access while they work, and I would be devastated because I am forever looking up words or looking up things like the difference between IE and EG, you know, or when to use that versus where or something. You know, I, I always need to go 
and check things, even if it's just to get on Twitter and go, go, uh, you know, hey, guys, help. What do I do? What do I use? Yeah, I totally agree. I couldn't turn it off. I just but also think it's a generational thing because I know um, Jonathan Franzen is completely and totally. If you want to be a good writer, you turn off the Internet. You just turn it the fuck off. And I don't think our generation can do that so easily. I can't even do that because I usually have music streaming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not even using my own music. I just go to Pandora <laughs> and turn it on. You also use Twitter in a very different way, though. You get input for your pieces from your Twitter audience. So what's what's that like? Um, well, I do a lot of uh, crowdsourcing questions about relationships and sexuality because I've always felt that it's important, and these are some of these ideas I pitched to my editors. Um, I think it's important to have a back and forth. And, you know, I can't constantly be writing, 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 and not, because I've, I've stopped reading comments. I should point that out. When I write an article, I don't read comments anymore because I've had really, really bad experiences, and I just don't do it anymore. But I still like to have that conversation. So. I put a lot of crowdsourcing questions out on Twitter and on my Facebook page in the hopes of getting responses. And I have to say, I don't get as many responses as I would like. Like, you have contributed a few times, and I'm so grateful for that. But it's it's really, it's like people love to talk about themselves. Like, why aren't you responding? I'm asking you about a a personal topic, you know? Especially since you ask, you know, what name they want credited. So it doesn't have to be their you know, identifiable name or something. Yeah, exactly. It's totally anonymous if they want it to be anonymous. If, you know, your name is Amber and you want to change it to Helen, go for it. I'll change it to Helen for you. Right. I think it's, I I like getting feedback through Twitter. Uh, Comments are a little bit different because most of the time something I write or say is going to be through my own website. So I feel very obligated that, okay, there's a comment. First of all, I I moderate my comments. Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. But, and I know, like, my my friend is an editor at, at one of the big, huge websites, and she's like, I really wish I didn't have to read these, but it's my job. And, you know, like you said, you can get some really bad experiences. And I've, and I've had my share, but I've also discovered that I like being really, really snarky. <laughs> so <Yeah>. I, <laughs> especially since it's my own website and I have nobody to answer to but myself, I will really just lay someone out like, well, thank you for being an expert on this. Yeah. That feels <laughs> so good to do that. Like, because I have a, a website, I, it goes into um, info at aminishtel.com and then it's forward to my Gmail. Cause no way in hell I'm going to put my Gmail out there. So when I get the evil comments, from people that it's like, I'm sorry, you commenting on an article wasn't enough. You had to take time out of your day to tell me that you think I'm a piece of shit through an email. So I love responding to those. And I, I actually got a woman um, a few months ago who I responded in this really snarky way, pretending that I was my assistant saying that, um, cause she was really rude. I can't remember exactly what she said. Um, but she was going on and on about what a horrible person I am. And so I said, you should know that this has been recorded and this is considered hate mail and it will be passed on to the lawyers. And um, (laughs) the 
then there's nothing wrong with that. No, there's nothing wrong with it at all. Like, she, like, ripped into me and called me. I Oh, the thing is, I had written an article about how I thought um, suicide was selfish. It was after Robin Williams had committed suicide. And as somebody who has survived a suicide attempt, this was my opinion, um, as it is in most, you know, narratives. And um, she just, like, ripped into me so I responded with that, and she got so angry, and she was going on and on and on about, well, I want your lawyer number, and I Googled, I'm like, what is a lawyer number, and there was this back and forth, and she got, and I was completely and totally calm, I'd had a couple martinis, it was after brunch, and she got angrier and angrier, and she told me that she was going to contact every website that I've ever worked for, and she was going to have me fired, because nobody should talk to her in this way, after she she has initially emailed me about basically what a cunt I am. And then she just, I mean, it was hysterical to watch. And um, she said she was going to start a website that was going to be the anti-Amanda Chattel website. Oh, yeah, people do that. I mean, well, we've, you know, we've all heard about the horrors of places like 4chan and Reddit. Oh, and yeah. And stuff. I mean, I, just, I can't even go to them. I can't. Oh, yeah, absolutely not. I mean, I had a Reddit account, and I have long since ignored it after the whole Gamergate bullshit. Oh, my God, that was absurd. It's still going on, you yeah. know. And it's it's amazing, like, how there's, there, at some point, the notion of developing thick skin from, you know, like from something like the editorial process. It's a professional environment. You, it's all for your own benefit. But taking shit from people that are total strangers, people from the internet, it's like, why do we have to put up with it? I have, the block button in 2014 became my friend. Other people that I know use BlockBot, mm -hmm. and I don't want to just like sign up for yet one more thing, basically. So, uh, because I don't really know it, I don't trust it, I don't really, uh, you know, know why I would use it, but I just got to the point where I'm like, I just don't need this person's shit, and I would block them. And, like, one was, a couple days ago, was a guy that I've interacted with before. He interviewed me for a column, and he completely, like you're saying, like, laid into me about something. I'm like, I don't need your shit. Yeah. Like, I just don't need you in my life block <laughs> and it was and that was that like I am now done with you yeah blocking is that's I find that when I get a lot of um men's rights activists which mm -hmm. are like as you know the bottom of the barrel they are um all they have to do is just reach out to me once on twitter and they're blocked I don't even engage with them anymore because they're Oh my god, they just... I've, well, I've preemptively blocked people on Twitter based on what people replying to friends of mine. Oh yeah, that too. I'm like, if you're a complete dick to one of my friends, you know, and they're saying, um, guys, this is going on right here, report this person. Well, with Twitter, the way it works, reporting people doesn't do anything. No, it really doesn't. And I reported so lots of people and it, nothing. Yeah, no, nothing. I mean, you can get rape threats, death threats. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, Twitter, especially Twitter does nothing if you are not the person. Um, really, all you can do is report them as spam, mm -hmm. and perhaps that will get their account closed. But uh, I like, I love Twitter, and I love the interaction. I like the way that you're using it for for asking for feedback. I'm I'm one of those people also that will 
take surveys like New York Comic Con wants to send out surveys about things that you like about their shows. And, and I'm one of the people that takes time to respond to that because it's going to make the experience the next time better, mm-hmm. hopefully. Like, that's the goal, is to improve on something. Yeah, no, that Twitter is great for that. It it creates, when you use it appropriately, and and you go into it with an open mind that it's about giving and taking feedback and all that stuff, um, I think it's a great community. And the people I follow and the people who follow me, most of whom are, you know, feminist women, of course, um, I feel like we kind of have each other's backs, even though we've never met each other. And I really love that. I feel safe in that way. As long as you can block out the shitheads, like you feel sort of like this bizarre safety amongst these people that you've never met face to face. Since we're talking about relationships and everything, something bizarre to me is when I see joint social media accounts for couples. (laughs) I don't understand how you don't have a unique identity enough to have your own Twitter, your own Facebook. And I don't mean brand. Like, I understand if you're a brand. Like, I've seen husband and wife writing teams and stuff. If you're going to have, like, you know, like, Facebook has profiles and they have pages. If you're going to have, like, a page for these are the books we put out, et cetera, et cetera, I understand it there. But I don't understand when you have to have a joint profile and like that's all your presence is I don't yeah that I don't I don't know any of those kinds of people nor do I want to um I mean a a couple of that a couple of those have popped up in the past you know when people from high school reach out and I know within like a couple hours that they just need to be unfriended because they're like yay yay we should outlaw abortion blah blah but yeah I I feel that it's Honestly, I feel that it's a tragedy if you can't be separate from each other on social media of all places. You know, I just, I could never. I'm married and I don't even know if I have the fact that I'm married listed under my, on Facebook as, you know, my about me thing. I don't even think it's listed there, to be honest. It's interesting that all of these new social networks that are popping up don't even have status. Yeah, as it shouldn't. I mean, who cares if you're married or not or, you know, in a domestic partnership? It's I don't I'm, I've always put myself first. And I mean that both selfishly and in a way of, you know, I just do my own thing. I'm I'm married. I have a partner and we're equals, but there's so much we keep separate. We have separate bank accounts. We have separate lives. I mean, right now he's in Paris. I'm in New York because he's Parisian. And, and I just, I don't see the point of sort of absolving and just becoming one. It just, it grosses me out, to be honest. Well, since we're talking about relationships and Valentine's and Galentine's, I, I assume you'll have some articles up about Valentine's Day. Of and course. Now, um, what kinds of stories can readers expect? <laughs> well, being that I'm sort of a negative Nelly, as my mother would say, um, I like to go about Valentine's Day in sort of this, you know, kind of fuck it as a 
as a romantic holiday and spend it with other people that you love. Like love isn't about just your partner. It's about your friends and your family and your dog. My ideal Valentine's Day would be my dog and I sitting on the couch watching pizza. I mean, eating pizza, <laughs> watching pizza and eating pizza, um, eating pizza and watching Netflix. Um, that's me all pretty much every every night with the cat. Yeah, and that's a great way to live, to be honest. I live in New York City, but even though I'm surrounded by millions of people and could go out, that's my favorite way to spend my downtime. But um, so far, the first article that I've done for Valentine's Day for this year uh, – actually, no, I've got two. Sorry. I uh, already did one on Bustle about horrible Valentine's Day stories that people were kind enough to share. Actually, think is that the one you contributed to? Yeah, yeah, that's one of them. And um, I also did one about why you should spend Valentine's Day with your friends instead of your significant other, which I've always felt is really important. Like, I don't believe that we should have one day out of the year where we sort of declare our love for our partner in these really stereotypical ways with red roses and chocolates and stupid little bears and... um. So I, I've never spent a Valentine's Day with my partner through my entire life. And in college and after college, my friends and I, whenever we spent Valentine's Day together, we always did something good. Like we'd go to um, the animal shelter and walk the dogs or we'd go to the beach and just hang around and drink wine. Like we did things that were just us and doing things that made us happy and walking dogs and then going drinking wine made us happy. There was no pressure of the whole Valentine's Day thing. So my articles within the next, you know, before Valentine's Day, as the week gets closer, the day gets closer, rather, are going to be more about that than I think anything else. You uh, you preemptively answered my, my follow-up question, which was how does somebody who writes about relationships handle a holiday with all the pressure? Um, is it only Valentine's Day where you think that that's, significant or like do you view anniversaries the same way or any other holidays like winter holidays I view them all the same way and that there's too much pressure I you know birthdays like Christmas whatever one celebrates is I just I think when it comes to relationships everybody just needs to take a step back they need to breathe I didn't spend Christmas with my partner, because as I said, he's in a different country right now because immigration in this country is a pain in the ass. But that's another discussion. Um, and I was fine with it. Like, I spent it with my family. I spent it with my dog, who I love more than my partner, to be honest. And it was great. And his birthday is next month, my partner, and I won't be seeing him because I won't get back to France until, like, March. And it's not the end of the world. It will never be the end of the world. Even when our wedding anniversary came and went, it's like, okay, cool, let's order pizza and, you know, call it a night. I had it's it's funny that you you say that, you know, because your your husband's off in, in another country. When the last time I had a steady boyfriend, he had to, you know, spend the holidays. He went back home to his family in another state. And we didn't celebrate, you know, Christmas, if you will, until, like, I think the end of January or something. Mm -hmm. I'm like, whatever. And it was just a quiet night, like any of our other weekends that we had together. Everything was just always laid back and quiet. And, um, you know, it was, it was about the two of us and not about all of this bullshit around a holiday. Yeah, and that's the way it should be. Like, 
people people focus too much on that stuff and they're feeding into you know the marketing industries who want us to you know spend more money and make bigger deals out of it but i'm also i should point out i'm not a romantic i am i'm not a romantic in the way of love i'm romantic in the fact that i live in a place called mandy world um 24/7 i'm very happy there um okay. but <laughs> I, I would celebrate that that's awesome yeah. um but i just i've never been a romantic in when it comes to love and i just I feel that that kind of stuff is, you know, it's, it's just, it's about being together. It shouldn't be about pressure. It shouldn't be about you have to be together on a certain holiday or Valentine's day or your anniversary or your birthday. If you're apart, then no shit happens. That's the way the world works. Life isn't perfect and relationships aren't perfect. And being apart is, you know, not a bad thing. I, I know it sounds weird to people to have a long distance marriage, which is what I have. Um, although we are together for, you know, a few months in each country and then, you know, until we get the immigration thing sorted out, but I love it. Like when he leaves, I'm sad, but I get the bed to myself and I do my own thing and I can vacuum totally naked and not feel weird about it. Not, you know, I feel completely comfortable with him, of course, but you know, sometimes you don't want to vacuum in the nude in front of your partner because your boobs are jiggling and vaginas everywhere, you know? Somebody uh, had, had uh, I don't know, been talking about what their notions of ideal marriages are. And because we are, I mean, it's, we're redefining it. And sometimes, in a way, when I look at it, we're not redefining it. We're simply going back to, like, the way it was 400 years ago or something. You know, back when couples had their own bedrooms. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you had space. You had you had uh, and and your place was big enough that even you know the common areas you could divide up reasonably and still feel like you had your own uh, unique identity, and I think that got lost. And as uh, it's sort of a, a catch twenty two. Like I love the the movement for all of these tiny places that uh, like these little like small space residentials where people are taking cargo containers and turning them into apartments. Mm-hmm. It's a really cool idea because of energy efficiency and the the downscaling and not having so much material crap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, like my idea of what would be ideal would be separate spaces and then a communal area. Like I, I just like that. I mean, I like it was uh, I was reading about Truman Capote and what he did was he bought his boyfriend the house next door. Brilliant <laughs> idea, Truman. Brilliant. I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm like, I love this. I think this is so genius. You know, or if you have a duplex or something, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, I, you know, but it's part of part of why we end up so clumped together is because people can't afford shit anymore. Yeah, I know. I live here. I live in the East Village and I live in a one bedroom and I moved into this apartment eight years ago when I was, you know, single. And, and so it's difficult having him here because it is such a small place, which I spend a small fortune on, of course. And so a lot of times, I would go to bed before him because I wanted to fall asleep and not have to share that bed space. And when we're in Paris, um, he has a two bedroom there. So 
a lot of times we'll sleep in separate beds and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. We still have great intimacy. We have amazing sex, but you know, having your own space is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. I, I know that there's, there's so much new dialogue going on, as you said about the word sapiosexual. There's also you know, people that are taking the time to redefine themselves in terms of romance, like being romantic or not romantic. And can you be romantic with somebody the same gender or a different gender? And it has absolutely nothing to do with, with, you know, body parts and orifices and any, anything sexual. It's all about a romantic identity as opposed to a sexual orientation and then a gender identity. They're, they're all new terminology that we're adapting. And like you said, younger people are having the advantage of learning this sooner. So um, sapiosexual, for the listeners that have never, never perhaps heard the word, is when you're attracted to somebody based on intelligence. Yes. And they actually... Um the interesting thing about this is one of the psychologists um, that I researched on the interwebs, she said that sometimes it doesn't even result in sexual contact, that they can actually, a true sapiosexual, although, I mean, how one defines a true sapiosexual is, you know, sort of um, up for debate, can get off sexually on just conversation, just really small right. conversation, which I think is really yeah. fascinating, to be honest. That was my understanding of it, yeah, that's because that's how a friend of mine identifies, and that's what she said. She said if, if somebody is reading poetry to her in her ear, you know, she can have an orgasm. Oh, my God, that's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> it is. It's like these wonderful things that our bodies can do that people are finally talking about. Um there's, you know, there's a woman who has been, has been studied. She's been put in MRIs because she can think off. She can be completely alone, not masturbating, and think herself to orgasm. That's phenomenal. Yeah. So it's, and they, you know, when when science is saying, hey, this is what's going on, then there shouldn't be, you know, some kind of like there shouldn't be a backlash or there shouldn't be somebody negating it saying, no, that's not possible. Or no, uh, a marriage is only this. It's like, well, how do you know? Yeah, or, I know. Or a relationship is only this. It's like, you know, can you still have a relationship without sex? Yeah, you can. Oh, absolutely. And I don't know. I'm just, I guess I've gotten to the point where I, I'm so, as much as I realize that everybody has their own opinion, I just, when people say that you can't do this and you can't do that, and especially when it comes to human sexuality and relationships and how people feel or identify, I just, if you say that that's wrong, I'm sorry, I honestly feel that that opinion is wrong. Where nobody's in any place to judge, and I feel that live and let live is something that everybody needs to really make part of their understanding of their fellow human beings, but certainly not enough people do. Right. I think um, I think it's easy to, to blame it on a generational thing, but at the same time, it's not. It's just about how open-minded you are. And, you know, there can be people in their 70s who are open-minded and have never heard these things before and would embrace them, just like polyamory. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's... Um, 
one of the things that I'll, you know, I'll talk to you about uh, later is how we're finally seeing these things in entertainment, which are introducing people to other types of relationships. Uh, but uh, just keeping on Valentine's Day for a second, I was wondering what your honest opinion of greeting cards is. I have a feeling <laughs> I know, but with your, your, you have poetry experience. So I want to know if you, if you find greeting cards for the lazy people or if you think, well, some people have a hard time finding words um, as opposed to, like you were saying, you feel like you have a hard time speaking, which you're doing beautifully, by the oh, way. Thank you. Um, but, you know, other people might have a hard time finding words at all. So do you, how do you feel about, about greeting cards? I think greeting cards are the devil's work, and I don't even believe in the devil. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, they've gotten really expensive. So expensive. <laughs> so I went to buy um, a, a card for my nephew who just turned five or six. Uh, I don't know. He, he just had a birthday. And I went to get, like, one of those cutesy, silly cards, and um, – it was four ninety five. It was five dollars for a card, and I just think right. I mean, that's not even a toy he's going to play with. Like, it's not even going to do anything. I know, but I yeah, it's absurd. So, my thinking is, even if you can't express yourself, and I know so many people can't, especially when it comes to love. If you genuinely love somebody, just tell them that you love them. Just tell them that. You know, everything about them that, like, drives you wild, and it doesn't have to be poetic, and it doesn't have to rhyme or be put fancily in stanzas, and I I just think that, number one, it's a waste of money, and number two, you can put your heart, like, you can put it on your sleeve and you can put it out there, even if it's not, you know, in a perfect little package, like a, like a poem or a sonnet. So, um, uh, because I was thinking of how much humor and honesty and stuff you put behind your writing, I was like, hmm, I wonder if she would ever get to the point where she would make angry Chattel greeting cards. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I just laid shit out. <laughs> oh, God, that is such a wonderful idea. Maybe someday. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just, I just, I, I think the thing is also, I don't really take much, like, to heart, obviously, especially when it comes to that kind of stuff, it's, I don't know, I always try to find the humor and everything and laugh at everything, because life in general, like I was saying before, sex is funny, life is funny, like, even when it's a shit day, there's still something to laugh about, and people just, I don't know, people just overthink things, and especially Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day can go fuck itself as far as I'm concerned, to be honest. <laughs> Um, have you ever had to research it, like, to see what other romantic holidays there are? Because I know there are different ones, like, you know, from, like, we, I mean, we celebrate our American holidays, and that's, it's February 14th for us, but, um, you know, like, medieval romantic days were completely different. Yeah, I've never actually researched it. I, I know that Valentine's Day has been around for so so long and I always get angry when people say oh well it's just a hallmark holiday and it's like well actually no it really isn't it's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years um I'm not aware of any other romantic holidays I know that in France um they have holidays of the saints which is viewed in a romantic way especially if 
uh, you happen to be named after a saint, then it's basically like another birthday. And um, Right. And oh, that's true in, in Poland as well. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's all over Europe. I'm not sure. But um, and a lot of those, depending on who the saint is, France will take the day off. But I also think France looks for any reason to take a day off to be a <laughs> That's just what they do over it's there. It's awesome that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. It's great that Yeah, way. my husband works um, three nights a week. I work about 60 hours a week writing, and he works three nights a week. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's like, wow, we've really fucked it up, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, we really have. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, as I was saying before when I, when I was, uh, still had Valentine's Day thoughts, I know that we always uh, end up with talking about entertainment and how people are portrayed in the media. And uh, like, you you know, you and I at least have this openness talking about LGBTQ uh, issues and, and characters and everything. So one of the things that I've noticed is that television writers are finally improving their sexual content with LGBTQ characters and relationships. So I just wrote a piece about how USA Network's sitcom, Sirens, it's a little half-hour comedy. Oh, wait, is that the, um, that's the, wait, it has, like, a a, a gay character, yeah. the, the hot black guy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I haven't actually watched it, but I've seen the ads for it. So, yeah, it's about, uh, it's primarily centered around these three EMTs, but there's also the one EMT is dating slash engaged to, on again, off again, this female cop, Teresa. So it's the three guys and her mostly uh, make up the cast. But they talk about all different sexual orientations, including uh, a supporting character who's one of the uh, female paramedics uh, is actually asexual. And that's usually something completely erased and ignored in culture. So I, I know that people talk about bisexual erasure a lot. And then once one group starts talking about how they're ignored, another group starts talking about how they're <laughs> ignored more. And this, this sort of thing happens. So, we, you know, we've gotten gay characters regularly, and now we're starting to get bisexual characters regularly. So Sirens was one of the first cases where I saw asexuality handled appropriately. Mm-hmm. And uh, I say that because in, in what I wrote, if, if if anybody took the time to read it, thank you, uh, <laughs> how the Big Bang Theory changed Sheldon Cooper. And Sheldon went from being asexual to just being awkwardly sexual. He still hasn't had sex. but Wait, he's not sleeping with what's-her-name? Blossom? They, they have not had sex yet. Okay. So after this years and years and years, it's one of those things where it was supposed to be an asexual slash sapiosexual thing but she really wants to fuck him mm-hmm. so I have a feeling that's going to be their ticking time bob for whenever the series ends is probably going to be whenever Amy and Sheldon have sex um, but then I, I marathoned Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce oh how is that it's filled with ridiculous things that I can't relate to because they're all super uber rich mm-hmm. like even people that I know who live in California cannot afford houses and cars like these people can I mean these are like ridiculously rich one percenters that are and, and they have the nerve to complain about money problems um, yeah during their divorces so so that stuff gets on my case a lot like I just can't deal with it but as far as the relationships go they do show very realistic arguments and developments 
so there's a a gay brother to the main character. His name's Matt, and he's in an interracial gay marriage. So he's officially married, has two kids, and they argue like regular couples, and because they are regular, yeah. <laughs> they're just you know it's just maybe something that's not been on TV much. Um, you know, the new normal, modern family, they've all done really good jobs of it. So this is uh, at least interesting because I'm seeing the interracial aspects of it. But the husband to Matt, whose name is escaping me at the moment, is also non-monogamous. And um, it comes out where he says something about, you know, wanting to fool around. And, and the, you know, Matt says, well... I never had a problem with our arrangement before. So he's like, but you want to, you want to fuck everybody who's not me. So these are, these are real concerns that married people go through. Like, uh, you know, you start, something happens it's like lesbian bed death. They joke about, <laughs> but it happens in heterosexual couples and it happens in gay couples where something happens and you just stop fucking each other and you're more interested in other people. Um, and that's why I think polyamory can be really healthy and a lot of people just don't understand it, but they do have they they do have a woman on the show who tries a, a, her hand at polyamory, and for a while there she she likes it, and then she gets scared off by the notion of committing in that relationship because it's not just swinging and having a good time; it's eventually going to lead to commitment, and she freaks the fuck out. So um, the girlfriend's guide to divorce actually addresses all these sorts of different things, and sirens addresses all these different things. And um, it's, I love that it's becoming mainstream because you talked about porn and, and I wanted to ask you about that too. Porn is usually criticized for not having stories and not having things that people can relate to and these unrealistic expectations. So um, I have, I've been fortunate that I've discovered these other TV shows where I think the story is really, really good. So I don't know if you have you found anything that you want people to know about where you think relationships are handled really well. Um, to be honest, I just I'm trying to think. I'm kind of a whore for Law and Order, like the old ones. That's what I'm constantly watching. So I'm trying to think of new stuff. Um, not, I really I, I really haven't watched Law and Order. I know my mom has it on all the time. Yeah, I always it's kind of just like a comfort thing for me as I'm doing other things. I don't know, not off the top of my head. Uh, I know for me, like, the first introduction of a prominent gay character um, and relationships, like a a gay relationship with Sex and the City forever ago. Um, and I think since then, from what I've seen, everything has evolved so much better than that because Stanford totally embraced, like, this stereotypical gay man who dated other stereotypical gay men and you know it sort of fed into this idea of what a gay man is supposed to be and um same thing with their relationships and I think since then a lot has changed and changed for the best um like uh looking have you watched looking on HBO no I've never even heard of it um it's sort of like uh did you ever see Queer as Folk remember Queer as Folk I, I've never watched it, but at least I've heard of okay. it. Well, looking is sort of like a more 
modern day version. I think Queer's Folk was on like 10 or 15 years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, about, you know, gay men having relationships and like committed relationships, whereas for a long time it was assumed that, you know, if you were gay, you were a hedonist and you couldn't keep it in your pants. And um, I think that's a perfect example of showing that, um, you know, stereotypes are obviously wrong and, um, you know, you can have a healthy, committed relationship, but if you have, you know, enough trust and enough communication, you can branch outside of that and it's okay for everybody. It's, it's introducing people. First of all, the problem is if you can keep them on the air, like a girlfriend's guide to divorces on Bravo channel and sirens is on USA. Um, because there are still these ridiculous notions that being gay somehow makes you a pedophile. I know. God. And, and I'm just like, well, okay, heterosexual white man, are, do you find little girls uh, sexually attracted or something? Like, you know, what makes you think that somebody who's attracted to men would also be attracted to little boys like I just it's so ridiculous and then they get into the whole oh what are you gonna want to marry your dog next (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like really like how does your brain even go there yeah I don't Um, get it I just I never will I never I never will I mean I, I see where they're worried for some reason about polyamorous marriage but the point is that is that marriage creates a legality and protects people And it protects because inheritance issues and estate issues get completely fucked up. You know, when when a woman who's who's been with another woman for like 40 years has to fight to to preserve, you know, what her partner left her because things aren't aren't recognized properly. I mean, that's just absurd to me. Yeah, I totally agree. So, you know, I am I am glad to see some of the stuff maybe maybe seeing it more will help people adjust. I don't know. I don't know if it will. I, I blame, um, religion for all of that nonsense. Oh, absolutely. Um, (laughs) Yeah, completely. (laughs) Yeah. I blame religion for a lot of things in general. Uh, as an atheist, I think that's, you know, just my thinking about organized religion. Um, and I think as long as people are religious and they interpret the Bible on their own terms, uh, they're never going to get used to it. Like generation yeah. after generation, there will always be that group of people who will never get used to it, will never realize that, wow, something that's different from the way you live your life is awesome and healthy. And if it works for them, that's cool. I just, I don't. And they'll do all that judging while eating bacon and shrimp. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I don't know. <laughs> But I, I so I know that you're going to do this uh, a podcast soon about about the porn industry and um, it you recently wrote an article about Pornhub's stats and uh, one of the things that uh, when Pornhub released their yearly stats was interesting was how women are looking for lesbian porn so much and I it's it's like it can't possibly only be you know women who don't identify, um, you know, as lesbians themselves. It's clearly got to be women who call themselves heterosexual, just like the, the, the drunk lesbian notion, like suddenly you're bi-curious when you've had four cocktails. Um, 
So what is it with um, the, that stat tell you about people's uh, desire for gayness that they're not willing to admit? <laughs> well, the thing is, what they found was the reason women, both um, straight and gay, are going towards the lesbian porn is because there's much more attention on oral sex and the clit. And whereas in straight porn, you just, you know, a lot of times it's really degrading and there's like a gangbang going on and it's not about what the woman wants. It's about these men penetrating every single fucking hole that she has. And um, so the thing was with lesbian porn, they take their time and they pay more attention to the vagina and what a woman wants. And, um, so that's why it's very popular with all women, which I think is really great. It just shows how different we are. Cause, um, the big one, one of the big stats was women go for the lesbian porn, then the, the gay male porn, whereas men, their big one is teens. Not really surprising there. I know. I noticed that too. And then the second one is MILF. Of course. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the science behind it is they seem to think that it's vagina related. Like we want, as women, we want people to pay attention to our vagina, make our vagina feel good so the rest of our body feels good. And um, that's why there's such a a big um, audience for lesbian porn. It's definitely something that I noticed in, in mainstream porn that uh, that oh my god everything is either blowjobs or anal oh my god yeah and and, and and I've tweeted this I'm like I'm like seriously people what is wrong with the vagina why have you forgotten about it and and the clit no less like the woman has to take care of her own oh yeah um, but it's like like yay kudos for people learning about butt sex and learning how to do it safely and everything great for you but my god like can we can we get back to doing something else i know it's so strange like i i watch porn i watch a decent amount of porn and you know i i've always wanted to like look into feminist porn and and i haven't looked into it as much as i should but when you just like you type in porn you're looking for like scenes just to sort of so you know, grab your vibrator, come in less than like two minutes. That way you can move on with your day feeling all great. Um, right. It is the majority of it is anal and blowjobs. And what drives me crazy is anal. Um, what's the term? Ass to mouth. Like, so, so she's not, so she's not only giving a blowjob, but she's, she's sucking down what's in her ass. Yeah. And it's just, it's, I would never judge anybody who enjoys that flavor and what they're doing, but it, it just, it's not porn in general. A lot of it, mainstream porn, it just is not, it's not made for women. It really isn't. And there's, there, and there are so much, there's so much about the process that's not in what you see on the screen. Like, um, you know, I've from whatever whatever I've read about anal sex is that you're supposed to have enemas and you're supposed, <laughs> you know. Oh yeah. I mean, you're not going to sit there and see that part of it in a in a porn. No, you're not. And I don't know. You know, and you should never go, never ever go from ass to vagina because you can cause infection. Yeah, of course. But of course, in porn, they do. They're in and out and in and out and then over here and yeah. there. 
and there could be three or four of them. I mean, and it's always these crazy ass positions. Like, how do you even do that? Yeah. I'll never like, I get it. They're athletes. I mean, they're total athletes. I will never understand the woman sitting on top of a man, um, reverse cowgirl style. And she, she puts her, her feet on his thighs. Mm -hmm. Like that looks painful for everybody involved. And you need a really gigantic cock because otherwise it's not going to reach. Oh, it totally, it's going to keep popping out. Yeah. So I, I just, yeah, the expectations are ridiculous. I mean, it can be fun to watch, but I, I think it's, going to do nothing but give you bad feelings if you say, honey, let's try this, and you can't do it. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things that um, James Dean has always said. Um, James, I know you know James Dean, the porn star, but, I, like, I need to say, yeah. not James Dean who's dead, guys, but James Dean, the porn no. star. D-E-E-N. The <laughs> yeah. thing is when he's giving advice about how to have great sex, he says the last thing to do is try to do any of the positions you see in porn. Just the last, that's, that shouldn't even be anything you should ever try. And for a reason, you're going to hurt yourself. And you, there's no camera in your room that you need to, like, physically appeal to. So trying that stuff is, I mean, you're really going to hurt yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's great if you can. And um, I think it's interesting when, uh, now that we have the home technology, uh people have to worry about shit getting stolen and leaked on the internet or re- revenge porn, which, Oh my God. Oh God. Lord. I, I can't believe, can't believe that exists. Um, yeah. I mean, I go approach with caution, have good communication. These are all things that, that I think should come naturally, but are hard to talk about. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I actually have a couple of friends who, one friend in particular who is very much dissatisfied with her sex life and the different things that he wants her to do. And she continues to participate in them. And it's literally the elephant in the room because she has never once addressed, sorry, she addressed it once that she didn't like to strap it on and fuck him in the ass. And he got really mad and there was a big fight. And since then, they have not talked about it, and she hates it, and she continues to do it, and there's no communication in that part of their relationship at all, and it's heartbreaking. I agree. So hopefully with the the new feminist movement that we have, women will stop feeling so much pressure to only please other people. Yeah, they have to please themselves. I mean, sex is okay if it's selfish to a degree, you know? You're both there to get off, and you have to be open about it. You have to give instructions and directions sometimes. And if you can't do that, then maybe you should think about, you know, just, I, I've, I've always been of the thinking that if you can't put out there what you like and what you don't like, maybe you shouldn't be doing it at all. I, That's a really good way. Of yeah. It. If you're going to be a sexually active person, you need to be responsive, responsible about it in all ways. And that, includes not just safe sex, but communication. And um, as one of my partners had said, he's like, sex toys are not the competition, gentlemen. They are your friend. (laughs) Yes, and it would be great if more men thought of it that way. And they do think of it. A lot of them think it's competition, which is bizarre to me. Yeah, I, and I can understand why, um, especially when you get used to, to something like vibrators or different sizes or something. But, um, you know, use them together. Yeah, 
Talk about it. Talk about it. It's so it. much fun. I love sex toys. And I'm constantly getting free sex toys to, like, write reviews about. And whenever I get a new sex toy, my partner and I jump up and down and clap. and like, woohoo, let's try this. And it's he, you know, is not intimidated by no matter how gigantic the vibrators are. <laughs> cool. cool. That's why I love Ojoy Sex Toy, the webcomic. I'm I'm forever recommending mm-hmm. it. It's so much fun to read because they again add humor and honesty, and you know uh, explain that what works for one person might not work for another person. Yeah, exactly. All right, Amanda. Before I let you go, did you have anything else that you wanted the Vodka Clock listeners to to know about? I don't. Like, is that horrible? Does that make me no. a horrible guest? No, you're not a horrible <laughs> guest. Well, like you said, you're not used to, to going out and doing public speaking, so you don't have speaking engagements or anything lined up. But um, where can people follow you on Twitter so that that way, the next time you ask for input, um, maybe people would be willing to help participate yeah. in your next article? That would be awesome. Um, I'm always up. I'm always posting crowdsourcing questions, like I said. So people can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is angry. That, what is my Twitter? It's Angry Chatel. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's Angry Chatel from when I was an angry office manager. Um, they can also, I have a page on uh, Facebook. It's pretty new. I've only had it for a couple weeks now, and that's just my name, Amanda Chatel. Um, yeah, so if anybody wants to share their adventures in sex and relationships, they always have a platform with me. That's great. And yeah, and your website, Amanda Oh, yes, com. That's really boring and needs to be like updated. But but that's, yeah, basic information. Basic information. And if you need to send me an email, that's how you can contact me and it'll come into my Gmail. And if you seem like you're a loving and caring and sane human being who isn't going to wish me dead because I write about abortion, then I will respond to you from my Gmail and then we can become buddies. <laughs> All right. Well, I look forward to to following along with your articles and everything and um, the porn discussion you're going to be having soon. Yes, me too. I just need to practice my speaking skills. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Guys, you can follow me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber and everything else is at AmberUnmasked.com. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Thank you.